Hello. You must have heard the news by now. I will confess, in my foolishness, I didn't believe it actually existed. Well, rumors, sure, of the... My friends said their uncle saw a lady summon it at cafe bar in Fartown, sort. <laughs> but my friend, it is very, very real. And many of those who have called it have coaxed it to spill its secrets. Rumor has it that, emboldened, some Bislay are attempting to master it, to bind it, to merge with it, so far unsuccessfully. Nonetheless, this changes everything. A patron yesterday said he has heard the doors to the dark and the red are fluctuating, and we all know that can't be good. He also said the gray, well, let's continue on in good faith, shall we? What are you drinking tonight? Greetings, Vizlay. Welcome back to the Secret Cellar. So much has happened in the actuality these past few weeks. Cubes are shipping, first sessions are happening, and folks have finally started digging into the materials. As if that weren't enough, the directed campaign has started shipping. There is so much to do. Let us take a moment to offer sincere condolences and weave a spell of patience for those who are still waiting. Pre-orders, those with custom cubes, those in non-US places. Your long-suffering will all pay off. The cube is beautiful. Today I'm pleased to have Alexei Othenin and Gerard on the show. His intellect and his enthusiasm are utterly contagious, so I know you'll dig it. We're talking about broader themes of surrealism and philosophy, but most interestingly, Alexei has a bone to pick with Monty Cook and with some of the underlying themes of Invisible Sun. This excites me because it's challenging, but also kind of exciting in a context of trust, when you love something and also find parts of it problematic. I'm also experimenting with the format of the show. It's been hard for me to keep to a bi-weekly schedule, in large part because of the scheduling and editing time involved with hosting two guests per show. Instead, I'm going to try moving to one guest per show, and then sharing some of my own thoughts as a monologue. I'll be curious to hear what you think. Today, I'll be answering a question from Twitter, and talking a bit about the remarkable format of the directed campaign, and the new kinds of storytelling it enables. Friends, it is time. Vizla's call. Alexei, what are you drinking? Hello, Jason. I am sitting here because it's morning, a little early for adult beverages. I'm sitting here with a <laughs> delicious white tea, white peony, uh, grassy. It's actually a really lovely uh, morning drink. So uh, that does sound lovely. Mm. I'm um, I'm drinking a mocha at the moment. My standard mocha is like has just a bit of vanilla in it, but uh, this morning I just have you know whatever came in the cup. But it's <laughs> It's delicious. I wanted coffee this morning, and uh, so this is a substandard mocha. It, it is. Um, it's a passable mocha. This is, you know, fair enough. My my favorite mocha in town. There's a a little local place called um, Fire Creek Coffee that's downtown on Route 66, running right through the middle of Flagstaff. And uh, man, somehow they just have nailed the like, you know, it's bitter, uh, mm -hmm. just enough sweetness to like 
take that edge off and it's complex and I love it. And, you know, mm. the one I'm drink, drinking right now is like a chocolate syrup kind of mocha. So it's fine. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, if I'm ever in Flagstaff, I will have to go uh, buy that that bitter and complex mocha. That, that sounds delicious. No, you must. It's so good. I don't drink a lot of coffee, but I do drink hot chocolate. So mochas are a nice compromise. Yeah, you could you could make that work. It is uh it's very nice to have you here in the secret cellar. Um Yeah. You're an internet friend. We've just gotten to know each other recently. It's true. I I uh I feel a little bit like I was not much of a Twitter person. <laughs> um and as a result of having gotten involved with with the notion, uh suddenly I feel like I'm on Twitter all the time. So I I'm I definitely there's a little bit of a feeling for me as if like one day I was on Twitter and you like reached through and just like grabbed me and like yanked me into the <laughs> into that milieu where I'm suddenly like, oh, a whole other world of people arguing at each other. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Welcome to that. Uh, yeah. You know, my my dark secret, I've had a Twitter account for a couple of years, but I never, you know, I would like I mostly just read stuff. I never yeah. posted anything or, you know, knew anybody or anything. So it actually. Um, the same is true for me. Like uh, Twitter is now a regular part of my world, and before it was not. Uh, as a result of all of this, it's cool. It's fun. It's weird. Thank you, the future. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, the future. Um, so I have you on for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. One, um, you had kind of gotten a couple of uh, of Twitter likes and stuff a bit ago for a. Tweetstorm you posted a few weeks back about surrealism and Invisible Sun, um, and then you turned that into a Medium post later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it turns out that there are pretty easy tools to to just sort of slurp all of that up and publish it on Medium. Um, yeah, I. So it's interesting. I have a very very amateur background in art history. Um, I'm in no way kind of qualified to talk about this, <laughs> but I am really fascinated by it, and it's something that I've always been like. That period of art and art history has always been something that's really resonated with me. So you know, in a very amateur way, uh, I've done my own research, and one of the things that drew me to Invisible Sun initially was the ways that it felt like it was trying to grapple with some of the same concerns of the surrealist art movement and do it in a really kind of uh, overt way where they're saying this is a, a surreal fantasy. And there's an obvious kind of nod to surrealism as an art form. And it made me think about, okay, well, especially for people who are coming to Invisible Sun as I have been and are like, this game seems so exciting and interesting. And there's something about it that really draws me. But, you know, what what was the actual history that that really happened in our world? And and a lot of the things that the surrealists were talking about, about, you know, kind of meeting making after the war and sort of reaching inside and finding like an internal schema of meaning that's that's personal and unique and like letting yourself be guided by your instincts and be guided by imagery and be guided by sort of like the you're exploring your internal landscape i think that's all stuff that's both i think valuable sort of for people in general but also really useful for players and gms of invisible sun to like keep in mind that those kinds of techniques can be really fruitful in this game yeah i have to say i think that the timing 
both in the world at large and then also just in my life specifically of this game emerging is pretty perfect. I feel like even five years ago, I would have been like, oh, that's neat and kind of appreciated the aesthetic of it. But I'm not I'm not sure it would have immediately felt to me like as a human, I need to go tell stories in this world. I don't know what I need to say, but there is something here mm-hmm. to be said that means something. Uh, and that feels deeply true to me right now, which uh, is interesting because you know i love D and i love numenera but there's not like a story clawing out of me in those settings in the way that there is in this which is kind of fascinating yep yeah i know i agree my real inroad was i was listening to a lot of campaign and you know had really fallen in love with the one-shot podcast network and when they announced the woman with hollow eyes i was like oh this seems really interesting and i think i watched ah, 15 or 20 minutes of the first session of a woman with hollow eyes, I felt like my brain had cracked open where I was something like, Oh, Oh wait, no, wait, this is, this is good. This is really good stuff. And like formally it feels really exciting. And, you know, thematically it feels really apropos and there's a bunch of really exciting kind of mystery about the game and about the world of the game. So I was enchanted. I mean, basically like, instantaneously upon coming upon it so i know you know i know that feeling and it's interesting actually because i think to segue hopefully not not um like not awkwardly but one of the things that i've really appreciated about the fan community that i've seen you know the notion and 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 all of the folks who are involved is like it feels like people are immediately gravitating towards like more serious stories and this whole idea of hey let's reach to the real world history of surrealism to inform our gameplay for me that comes from an instinct of like there's some really important and powerful stories that we can tell in this setting and it's exciting that the people that i see who are starting to think about the stories that they want to tell are also thinking about like oh man, what stuff can we tell that's not just a dungeon crawl or where we're trying to grapple with some of these deeper questions about humans and human beings and, you know, the 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 internal experience versus the external experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, that doesn't strike me as awkward at all. It's been very, I've had the same experience and the same delight. I think to some degree, you know, Invisible Sun fans are self-selecting in a sense because yeah it is a you know it's a hard it's it's kind of a hard a complex thing to wrap your brain around and it's it's not you know it does not lend itself in the same way to just you know kind of pulp stories which are great too but uh you know the palette that you have to work from in terms of character motivations and you know just just from the ground up the fact that you know, one of the arcs that exists is like fall from grace. Like you from day one could decide on behalf of your character that your character's primary goal, whether they know it or not, is to fail hardcore and lose everything as a start as a starting point, because there's actually an opportunity for grace. Right. And like, that's, you know, that's pretty. um, Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So we had had a really interesting conversation which um, 
was, you know, it was just the germ of an idea that we started kind of poking at. But mm-hmm. now that NDA is lifted, I think it's a great chance for us to kind of explore that a little more. Oh, yes. And I just want to talk, um, I'll give a brief introduction, and then we can mm-hmm. just kind of bounce some ideas back and forth. But you had written me early on and said, I am excited about Invisible Sun, but I have a concern. <laughs> can I talk to you about my concern? And I'll just say now for anyone listening, we don't have answers to this. I don't know what's going on in Monty Cook's, you know, delightful, weird mind. Um, but, you know, the game talks a lot about, obviously, the relationship between Shadow, mm-hmm. where you and I are sitting making a podcast, right. and Indigo, or the actuality where all the Vizlay, all the wizards are. are. Um, and I've even heard Monty Cook mention in an interview once that his original working title for Invisible Sun was Escape. Yep. And there's been this, this very, if you watch like the teaser video on the Kickstarter, it's very much this sense of like all the chaos and rush and senselessness and celebrity and news and politics and destruction and just meaninglessness that creates a fabric of noise here in our world that you know really what we are all yearning for is to escape from that launch out and you know get back to a place of meaning and a place of depth and a place where things really matter um and that makes sense in a way but that also feels a little weird do you want to elaborate a little on what you first talked to me about so this idea of you know this world the world around us like this is a false world you step out of this false world into like a real world. That's, that's a really like beautiful idea. And it's kind of, there's, there's, it's a very fantastical idea, right? The, the, it's a portal fantasy pretty much straight up. Um, But as I've become a more kind of critical reader, there's something about those kinds of stories that has started to bug me. And it, it really hit me hard with invisible sun, which is, there's this feeling for me of like, if if the Vizlay as a whole consider the gray to basically not exist, right? And we don't know how many Vizlay there are, but like we know that there are seven and a half billion people on Earth, probably nearly eight billion by now, um, people on Earth, and only a tiny, tiny fraction of those are going to be Vizlay. And that means that like most of the people that exist on Earth don't really exist in a material way in the world of invisible sun so most shadows most of the beings that we would encounter in our daily life in the gray aren't real people at all um they're they're just phantasm and there's something about that that kind of like it makes me uncomfortable as someone who's playing a game only because something that i've seen over the course of my life is people in this world in the real world being able and willing to sort of dismiss the humanity of other people oh there's something there that that is an echo of something that i see in the real world and find really like like deeply tragic about how people treat each other it even it even bubbles up in the awkward jokey spaces in between where you know that part of the conceit of the game is you know, if you can't make it to our game this week, well, it's because... You get dragged back to Shadow. Right. Like, Shadow, you know, pulls on all of us, and sometimes Vizlay in this world apparently just disappear, and it's just understood like, oh, yeah, you know, 
that person is now back in shadow. Uh, maybe they'll maybe they'll escape again and be back with us. And that's that's fine from like a meta gameplay perspective. But you know, in our communities, we'll joke like, "Oh, I have to go to my day job, off to shadow." Right. And it feels sort of appropriate in that context. But sometimes it's like, "Hey, sorry, can't play my game because it's uh, you know it's my two year old's birthday." Well, I mean, that's not that's not sha- that's not shadow. That's my two year old's birthday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You and I talked about this. I-, I talked a lot about this idea of like a philosophical zombie, which is this concept of like. What if there was a person who acted just like a human being, but didn't actually have kind of a subjective internal experience? Right. What, what would that look like and what would it feel like? And it's a, it's a thought experiment that's very common in kind of like Western philosophy. So basically, like reading through the Invisible Sun stuff, I was like, oh, seven billion people on Earth are philosophical zombies. Oh, and that's weird. Like you're really denying the essential humanity, the subjectivity of all of these people but who the game seems to be very comfortable with sort of like shuffling off and saying like oh well none of that is important right your life in shadow is a lie it's a it's a dream and when you get to the actuality your time in shadow becomes kind of like gray and dismal and and you know doesn't compare to the like rich and profound beauties of the indigo sun and the light of truth. Right. And they frame it in such a way where it's entirely a self-centered world, right? right. Like your experiences that you had in shadow still matter in a sense. You still remember them. They still helped form you. You learned from them. Mm-hmm. You know, you keep a shadow object with you that you carry back to kind of remind yourself of the time in that lesser place. But nothing else in that world matters except for in as much as it helped you to grow and be formed. Other than that, it was all just illusion. Right. Um, I think that this is the kind of thing that I was a little bit afraid that the community of people around this game would sort of be like, oh, that's just the way the game is. Why are you thinking so hard about it? That's just one of the fundamental assumptions that the game makes. But the thing that has really heartened me is every single person that either you or I have broached this subject to has been like, you know, that was bothering me too. And here's my take on it. People are willing to engage with this question. And I like that. I like that the community is willing to be like, yeah, I know, like rather than shuffle this uncomfortable question off under the rug and not think about it, are there ways that we can start to at least poke at that question in the world of the games that we're playing, right? Can we kind of bring that up a little bit and let our players maybe grapple with that or let the other NPCs kind of grapple with that? And the thing that I think is really genius is one of the things that Monty Cook has very carefully set up, I I think, is I think he, he has actually seeded some stories around this concept um there are these like very very brief mentions that something is happening to the gray that the gray is changing yes that the hendasa who are an organization presumably of visley they're doing this very aggressive thing where they're finding visley and shadow and they're bringing them back out they're like kind of like spot lifting visley out of shadow to try to get everybody out of shadow before it undergoes some kind of transformation and it's also been mentioned that Shadow's been getting worse over time. Like, you could possibly even extrapolate and, and think that maybe Shadow 
was once upon a time not a bleak place. I mean, maybe not holistically full or like deeply alive in the way that the actuality is, but it was possibly a lie that served a different purpose where over time it has become oppressed, like clearly oppressive. Um, If you listen to the audio diaries at pathofsons.com, which are available to everyone, some of this that we're talking about comes directly out of those. So That's what I'm basing most of this stuff on. I think that stuff is super rich and great, and they're beautiful audio clips. So if you haven't listened to them, I, I highly recommend it. Absolutely. There's a clip from a character who identifies himself as being from the Hendasa and talks a lot about like getting Vizlay out of shadow. And then there's another clip later on from an apostate who just straight up is like the Hendasa are lying to you, you know? And, yes. and the fact that like Cook has like given us this wedge of like, because when you hear the Hendasa, you're like, oh yeah, there's an enemy and the Hendasa are here to help us. And like, they're pulling Vizlay out of shadow. That's good. And they're here. They're like taking care of us. And then as soon as the apostate is like, BT dubs, the Hendasa are lying to you. Like, don't trust them. I was just like, it made me so happy because I love the fact that Invisible Sun is it never going to give you like, well, the Hendasa are the good guys and they're doing good stuff. And that means that what they are doing to Shadow is fine because they're the good guys, right? Like there's always doubt, there's always wiggle room and there's always sort of ulterior motives, which makes a ton of sense for a game that's all about secrets and all about mysteries. And I think it does a really good job of opening up that conversation for GMs to be like, well, what do I think of the gray? Like, what's happening in the gray? What, you know, what what responsibility do the Vizlay have as a whole to the people of the gray? Like, right. I mean, even as far as like possibly, well, what if this whole story that all Vizlay everywhere have all been told that all the people in gray are just figments? I mean, what if what if that's fundamentally? What if that's a lie? What if that's not true? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, it's. Yeah, it's great. It's really good, actually. It's exciting. A thing that I've enjoyed a lot is there's just a tremendous amount of mutual respect between Monty Cook Games and the players in their community. Because I think a lot of products, if you had a bunch of people who had <laughs> fundamental just questions about like an essential aspect of a world, I feel like either, as you said, you'd have this whole base of like, you know, fan people that are just like stop taking stop taking right. this so seriously you know the yeah. game's great whatever don't think about it or you'd have people that would get all deeply personally cynical and bitter and be like well you know screw this we're gonna you know whatever they don't know what they're talking about and like i don't know take it some other direction and i love that everyone's response in this community is like we deeply trust monty cook games to be mm-hmm. doing something interesting and at the same time monty cook games is trusting its fan community to be smart enough to like play with these ideas and you know make your own decisions and like even down to and this is a, a detail about the, the the materials that i love is there's this constant tone held below the surface in all the exposition that is you know, as one example, um, you know, there are nine suns. Son. Vizlay know this as a secret about the universe, but most people just walking around in the actuality 
think that there are eight sons. They're aware of that concept. And this ninth son is actually already something of a secret and something of a mystery. And in the language of the book, the tone is of a narrator who is not entirely reliable, but who knows more than you and sometimes waffles about how much to tell you. (laughs) So you'll even get this thing where it's like, under the light of the eight, no, nine sons. Like, oh, I remember now we've let you in on this little secret. And that that kind of thing happens a lot where even the meta narrative of the expository text about the rules or whatever is handled at a little bit of a distance as though no matter how much you know, there is still more that you don't know, uh, which it just lends so much to this uh, flavor of the setting in the world. It's so great. Yeah, I really agree with you about kind of Montier games, like having a lot of faith in their players. It's interesting because they're having a lot of faith in their players not to take things on faith. Right, they're having a lot of faith in their players to like think they're putting ideas out there and not necessarily pointing a big arrow and saying think critically about this idea, but instead are willing to say here's an idea. And what I've seen is people, you know, again, kind of everyone that I've had this conversation with has been sort of like, oh, I've been thinking about this. I want a more satisfying answer. I want a more satisfying narrative. Right. Then seven billion people aren't real. Their history isn't real. The you know their achievements aren't real. Their their you know the the pain and suffering that they've gone through isn't real. The joy that they've experienced isn't real. Like it feels it feels weird to to hand wave all of human history away. And I really appreciate that Monty Cook is like, well, you know, maybe that's not what's happened. Maybe there are other possibilities. So. We'll see. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so let me ask this kind of in closing. Yeah. Can you tell me just a little bit in terms of your gameplay, both as a character and then if you end up running games, um, how, what are some of the goals that you have for storytelling in this world? Oh, man. Um, that is a good question. So the only Invisible Sun character that I have is Catafalc, my my uh, society pages editor at the Notion, and a fabulous dresser. I, I mean, he is very well dressed. We just worked out his signature item, and I'm excited for people to see it. I'm excited for them to see it as well. So the thing that I think has sort of drawn me in the most is the notion of the war and sort of the effects of the war and the fact that the war is unapproachable through normal linguistic means the fact that people can't or won't talk about it the fact that information about it is like hard to come by not because it's necessarily forbidden although i'm sure a lot of it is forbidden but that like it it, it occults itself right it like it like makes itself hard to find and i love oh frustrating yeah there, but there's something about that, that i think is so powerful about people trying to reach for their past right like trying to make sense of the story of your life. And I think this is like a a totally human experience that everyone shares where, you know, I'm almost 38 now. I look back on my life and like, I can tell myself a story of what has happened to me along the way, but I'm never 100% certain that that story is accurate because interpretation is fallible. And I love that this is a, a game where it's like, yes, there was a giant event, a huge world shaking event 
that happened, uh, no one is ever going to talk about it. And there's something there about putting Vizlay in the situation of like, oh, you've come out of shadow, build your new life in Saturine. Remember, <laughs> try not to think too hard about the fact that like, you lost who you are. Right. Like, like you don't have that anymore. And, you know, I'm excited as a GM to see both players who immediately become like, we, we kind of saw this in A Woman with Hollow Eyes where like, you know, Calvin very quickly gets wrapped up in this question of like, who was I and what did I do? But Kitty, Kitty is, is only concerned with her past as it, as it pertains to like her family. And Wayne is totally like, now that I know the thing that I wanted to know about my past, I don't care about that. I want the future. I want, you know, I want to like, I want to make this thing happen for myself in the Oh, it's so good. Really? It's so good. I mean, that's, I hope, you know, you ask like what, what sorts of stories I want to tell or, or what things I'm interested in. And, and honestly, the thing that I'm trying not to do in Invisible Sun as a GM is like, I have to school myself constantly. Like, don't write plot, right? Don't, don't, yes. don't tell a story. The thing that, the challenge that I'm setting myself as a GM is I want to put my players in a big full world and I want them to, I want to be able to tie their threads together. And if I can do, you know, if I'm, if I'm as 10th as good at Darcy is about kind of like evoking different themes and playing them out against each other over the course of a, of a game, uh, I will be proud of myself as a GM. Yep, yep, yep. Cool. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, start wrapping this up, but t- I'm going to I'm going to tease everyone a little and say that although we can't talk about it, you and I have gotten to be working on a big secret project that is um, that's going to be able to be announced soon, but not yet. I will only say that I'm I'm really excited to be working alongside you and the others that have been on our little team yeah. um, because yeah. we're hoping to. Uh, uh, flesh out flesh out some of these things we talked about a little more and and invite people into that so i'm excited to see that happen um do you want to tell every secrets secrets. Yeah, secrets i know uh do you want to tell everyone a little bit about uh where they can find you online i'm gonna post a link to the the tweet storm slash essay about surrealism for sure yeah excellent um yeah so i tweet at vox ex machina v-o-x-e-x-m-a-c-h-i-n-a uh, and you can find Catafalc at Catafalc9, um, C-A-T-A-F-A-L-Q-U-E. Um, he's extra. Uh, yeah, and that's uh, that's my Twitter presence. Uh, that's basically my online presence right now. Um, if anyone wants to check out the game design computer science program that I teach at Balboa High School, uh, they can find us on the Balboa High School website uh, I teach in San Francisco. So. Um, maybe we have a little web presence there. You should. Uh, I know that it's it is now defunct, but you should mention your podcast too. I really enjoyed listening to it. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, that's a good idea. Um, I do. We we have a podcast. It's on sort of like let's say hiatus. Um, uh, sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. We have a, a podcast called Carpe DM, uh, and you can find that at dmcast.net, and it's a podcast about teaching first-time DMs how to uh, run Dungeons & Dragons, uh, specifically uh, my friend Chris and I trying to teach our friend Meredith how to run her first D&D game. So. Super delightful. Yeah. 
Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Alexei, and uh, I will see you around on the internet soon. Jason, thank you for yours. This has been super fun. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'll, I'll see you at the the uh, offices of the Notion in the in the in the writers' room. <laughs> that sounds perfect. I'll see you there. Bye bye. For tonight's monologue, the first of its kind, I'm introducing a new segment, one which we haven't been able to include before, at least not in the context of Invisible Sun. It digs into the specific details of a particular game system. Crunchy bits. Tonight, I'll be performing a virtual unboxing of the directed campaign for Invisible Sun from Monticote Games. But don't worry, I won't be spoiling anything about the contents. I will be talking in broad strokes about the structure and function of what is provided. So, if you're not familiar with the directed campaign, it will serve as an introduction. And if you've been on the fence or considering purchasing it, this might help you make a decision about whether this product is right for you and your players. A brief overview. The directed campaign is an add-on for Invisible Sun, available for purchase right now in the Monticote Games store. There's a link in the show notes. It's additional materials, kind of an extra campaign, yes, but it's so much more. It is new content and adventure material, enough for a year of weekly play. For our group, who plays less frequently than weekly, it's gonna last us for a good while. Interestingly, this content is served serially, in chapters, once a month, and customized to your table's decisions. It also includes coaching from the creator of the game, Monty himself, and a sort of mixed reality experience. If your players want, they can provide you with their home address, and Monty Cook Games will, through the course of the year, send them items and objects, not just printouts, but cool little things to immerse them in the game more. And it finally includes access to the forums, a GM community who can talk to each other and to the game's creators to get feedback or advice about how to run everything at their table. It's ambitious. <laughs> it's worth talking about the context. The directed campaign isn't an afterthought or a thing that was added on. This was envisioned right from the beginning as part of the experience of Invisible Sun. Invisible Sun is a new product, and in many ways a new way of thinking about tabletop. We're all encouraged to take Invisible Sun and make it our own, but there are enough differences as regards design and philosophy that for a certain type of player, it makes a lot of sense to soak yourself in the thinking behind the design before you begin making it your own. The Black Cube absolutely contains all that you need to tell good stories, but the directed campaign is like having a mentor and co-author at your side. So, let's dig into the details. Upon letting Monty Cook Games know that you're ready to begin your campaign, you will gain access to download the first chapter. It's a zip file that contains PDFs and some other goodies. There are 30-something pages here? It's pretty dense. Monty does make a note that this is probably the largest of the chapters because it includes some introductory material and some hand-holding and setup that won't be needed in the future chapters. But there's a lot of good stuff here. I would categorize the content in three broad groups. First, what I'll call the guide materials. This is the campaign part of the directed campaign. Secondly, the reference materials. These are extra people and places and things that you might have in your campaign that you can use now for the directed campaign or put back in your black cube and use later. Finally, and you're familiar with this from the black cube, props. Really cool props. Let's talk first about the guide materials. This feels to me like a big book full of information 
but with a letter from a kind and wise mentor kind of tucked into the pages. It's written in a personal tone, very much like the GM materials inside the black cube, but even maybe another step personal and instructive, not just teaching you what to do or how to do those things, but how to think and why Monty is suggesting that you think in these ways. It might be easy for this to feel pedantic, but honestly, to me, amid the newness of Invisible Sun, I found it very refreshing to gain a deeper understanding of the thinking behind the system, and I do think my games are going to be better as a result. I mentioned these materials also contain the campaign. I have to back up a bit before talking about this. I came into this very curious what a campaign for Invisible Sun would look like. We've seen two examples, with A Woman with Hollow Eyes from Darcy Ross GMing and Monty Cook GMing The Raven Wants What You Have, and they both fall on opposite extremes of a spectrum. Raven was very directive. Monty had all of the Monty Cook Games players together for just a few days, launched things off in a pretty railroady direction, made for a great story, but it wasn't as open as I think I was expecting something from Invisible Sun and from Monty himself to feel. On the other extreme, Darcy really just threw open the doors wide for her incredibly creative cast of players to do whatever they wanted and then worked really hard in the second half of the season to bring it all back together and connect the themes. She did a spectacular job, but I am afraid that if I went that way, I would not be able to do the same and everything would just fly off the rails and explode. So I've been curious. Somewhere between those, what would an Invisible Sun campaign look like? And there's some good answers here. <sighs> there's some really cool storytelling judo happening. There is a big, weird, surreal, mysterious event which takes place in the directed campaign. It is suitably Invisible Sun weird. It wouldn't happen in any other setting I'm aware of. And it's really neat because every player everywhere across the actuality who is at a table taking part of the directed campaign is soon going to have to deal with this event. But what's fascinating is that this event is set a little bit in the background. Players will already have their own stories. Characters will have their own arcs that they're working toward. And this thing that comes up is just a hitch, just a thing that gets in the way of every individual character and every individual table doing whatever they're trying to do. So there's still an opportunity for characters to have their own arcs and their own directions and their own plans and to continue working at those both at the table and then inside scenes. It's really interesting and instructive I think to see how Monty set this up. Let's talk in a bit more detail and talk about the specific documents included. The first is a letter of introduction. It's quite specific and quite instructive. It includes an outline of the very first month step by step including some details about the first session, how you might pace things over the course of the month, and a bit of background on the forthcoming story. There's even a few specific thoughts about how to use the guiding hand, the GM notebook included in the Black Cube, with this adventure. Next up is an entire document discussing the first session. Now, if you've already had your first session, that's entirely fine. But if you haven't, I would recommend waiting and reading through this material in the first chapter of the directed campaign, and then running your first session after. I found this fascinating, and this is the one area I will drop a tiny spoiler alert. If you're a player and you want to have absolutely no idea how Monty and your GM are conspiring against you, just skip ahead 30 seconds, right? 
now. The thing is, Monty offers some useful and sneaky tips here for how to nudge your players toward arcs and NPCs and locations that are important to the future of the directed campaign. Again, no problem if they don't, or if you run your first session entirely without the benefit of this chapter. But just like the Sooth deck tempts us all to draw connections in our mind and release the latent magic of collective creativity, there's some discussion here about how to arrange things in such a way that players are more likely to come up with great ideas themselves, which then magically fit neatly into the future of the narrative. It's excellent. As you were. The final guide document is really the beating heart of this entire chapter. Before I tell you the title, I need to explain a bit about the desideratum. Literally, that which is desired from the Latin, the desideratum is the final step of the shared character creation process in the first session. The group as a whole decides on a very broad motivation, which they all share. A party whose ultimate goal is to gain power, or wealth, will likely make different collective decisions, be motivated by different things, than a group whose desideratum is ultimately altruism, for example, aiding someone. I have a funny story about my initial GMing in the beta. I at first didn't pay a lot of attention to the desideratum and also the connections that you're supposed to establish between PCs and NPCs, extra things which lend tooth to the story and to the arcs that the characters are working toward. I found very quickly that the story got out of hand. The work as a GM of trying to manage and wrangle all the arcs together into a cohesive whole started feeling forced and artificial. Going back and redoing this with Desideratum and some of these other design decisions implemented as suggested really makes all the difference in the world and provides just enough structure and context and momentum that it feels more natural and organic that these stories begin to weave themselves together. It also allows the players to begin doing some of that work for you so that you as the GM aren't trying to force it. <laughs> How foolish I was. The Desideratum is very important from Monty Cook's perspective, so much so that the beating heart of all the materials in chapter one is called Building on the Desideratum. This is the adventure module chapter, I guess, but it's all structured in such a way that it really allows the PC's plans and arcs to maintain spotlight. So a different lead-in is provided for each desideratum, and there's plenty of flexibility to explain how these events affect the party, no matter what its characters are already doing. It's so insightful and instructive about how to think like an Invisible Sun GM. Beyond that, there are NPC and location descriptions and background context and encounters of the type you might expect in any supplemental material. They're laced through with good contextual advice. I'll break my own rule and read you one sentence verbatim from the PDF itself, preceding a page full of small encounters for the PCs to have amidst their investigation. Quote, the point of some of this initial investigation and inquiry is less about the mystery and more about deepening the PC's characterization early on in the narrative." End quote. It goes on to describe several ways to put your characters in situations which force them to think deeply, to know themselves better, to know the other members of their party better, to strengthen their understanding of who they are in the world. Finally, there are some notes about how to think about running development modes and closing up the chapter. Again, and always, with a reminder that games shouldn't normally end on a cliffhanger so that Vizlay have the chance to go back home to their laboratories and libraries and houses and do whatever it is Vizlay do inside scenes. The second section of the materials I would broadly categorize as reference. These are things that can be used now or any time in the future, extra places and characters and items and even stories that can be folded into your campaign whenever you need. There is one entire 
chance encounter included, a little one-shot mission that can be played at any time if you find that you're moving too quickly through the material and you just need a little sidetrack. There's also a really cool document called Supporting Cast. It includes a list of NPCs and places, sometimes pointing to things in the black cube already, sometimes to new content. So for example, if you need a contact who can help with magical research, check out Te Niteris, page 104 of The Path. Great way to quickly figure out how to address the need of one of the PCs in your group. <sighs> I loved this so much. There was one other NPC that I won't give any details about, but the entire description of the NPC is a poem. A beautiful poem, a formal poem that has a structure on the page, so much so that it required an entire redesign of this particular page to allow the poem to fit and make sense. In what other world and setting and system and from what other creators would you find an entire NPC description as poem? I absolutely loved it, and I'm not going to lie, it made me a little misty-eyed. Final section to talk about is props. These are props. You know what to expect. They're very similar to the ones in the Black Cube, but tailored for the directed campaign. A really thoughtful detail that I appreciate, though, as a designer, every single prop is prepped both for print and digital. So on the digital side, each image, which might be a show-me of the type you'd find in a Numenera or a Cypher System book, or it might be a, a prop that represents something in the world to be printed out and given to your players, every single prop shows up as both a single page per item so that you can quickly put it on your iPad and hand it around or toss it up on your television to show everybody. But there's also a printable side where there's a single print PDF with all of the different props in a multi-page document with crop marks prepped for printing so you could take that thing to a FedEx printed on cardstock, cut everything out, and you'd immediately have a whole bunch of cool stuff to add to your props envelope and use in this campaign. Really, really nicely done. So, in closing, what is the Directed Campaign? It is a, a masterclass in how to think invisible sunnily from Monty Cook himself. It is an adventure module, but one that is structured in a different way and still leaves plenty of breathing room for characters to pursue their own arcs, for tables to move in the directions that they want to, with the events of the campaign as a backdrop. A whole bunch of ready-to-print or show props and physical items for your players. Really, just everything you need to get started in a rich year-long campaign with major points of interest figured out so that you can focus on your players and their arcs and interweaving the two. So here's kind of my crazy analogy. If the Black Cube is an instrument, like, hi, you can make beautiful stories with this, go play, but you're on your own to start from scratch. And a traditional campaign module is like a finished piece of music pressed onto vinyl. Here, go play this, it's lovely. This feels like a backing track. It has a structure, and it has a rhythm, and it has chord structures to bounce ideas off of, but leaves plenty of room for you to kind of step in and solo, for your own stories to step forward into the, the spotlight and to kind of take over and go the direction that they want to. It's a really nice complement to the way Invisible Sun is set up, and I am very excited to use it in my home campaign in this coming year. It's almost time to close, but I do want to answer one question that I received from Twitter. At Dark Takan writes, Hey man, I follow the Secret Cellar. It is one of the few places you can find info about Invisible Sun, waiting for my black box and to enter in the secret forum for the DMs, which is the one we just spoke of. If I could get access to your impressions as a DM, it would be fantastic. Thanks, Fran. So first of all, Fran, the previous episode of this podcast 
the one that's just labeled Chaser, it's not actually an edited podcast. It was just a recording of a conversation I had with the guys from Incantations podcast. It has a lot of good background information and stories from the three of us talking informally about our experience GMing, so you might check that out. But I will summarize here and say that the two most important things I learned GMing Invisible Sun are, one, really listen to your players, and by extension, their characters. Others have spoken about this, but it really is true that Invisible Sun, in a way different from other games I've played, is less about you, the GM, telling a great plot and story to your characters and involving them in it to your players. It's more about them figuring out what their characters want in the world and you bouncing off of that, flushing in the world around them as they go and weaving the threads together. It feels different. It's honestly exhausting in a way because it's a different kind of creativity, but also thrilling because I didn't quite know where things were going to go, but the stories that came out in the end were of another level, really satisfying. The second piece of advice I would give is give Invisible Sun a chance to be Invisible Sun. If your immediate tendency is to go in and tweak and break things and try things in a new way, I would recommend holding on for just a bit, trying to do everything as is recommended initially, your first time through anyhow, and learn what you can from it. And then, of course, as we all do, you'll take it and make it your own. So those are my two initial pieces of advice as you start GMing Invisible Sun. Thank you so much. I hope to see you all in the GM forums. There is change in the air. Exciting and a bit scary. But I'm glad to be walking through it with all of you. It's last call. Order one more nightcap as I dim the sham lights. A personal note of thanks, by the way, to Katrinity and Harold Eckmuller, and others who've written kind notes, critique, and feedback about the podcast. It makes me so happy to know that real people out there are enjoying this space. Do continue to let me know what you like, what could be better, what topics you'd like to hear me explore. Write to me on Twitter at underscore secret seller underscore. For the summer, I'll continue to be talking a lot about Invisible Sun, but hopefully flavored by bigger ideas of interest even to those of you who aren't playing this particular game. If you're enjoying what you hear, it would be a tremendous help if you'd take a moment and rate or review this episode on iTunes or wherever you find us. And if you're interested in advertising, write me at secretseller at zeros.bar. For the moment, you can purchase an ad for just $2. This is a great place to put your thing in front of smart, nerdy, delightful people. Audio design for The Secret Seller is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and The Secret Seller are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow. <laughs>